All right. So, um, hey, my name's Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. We are in Colossians 3. We'll be in verses 5 through 11 this morning. So if you would turn in whatever device it is that you have a Bible on. Um, sorry about that. And uh, just to catch us up to where we are and remind us of why we're in this space, what is it that Paul's doing here with this specific edification. So this is the section of the letter where he's telling us some things that we can do and some ways in which we can live out the gospel. So uh, to remind you, um, it just most recently he has been talking about kind of all these religious practices in chapter 2, philosophies, uh, feast days, asceticism, which just means to deny your flesh. He basically says, look, all of those things cannot actually get to the heart of the problem. They are actually not going to help you in your struggle against your own flesh. And what he's implying is that the problem is deeper than just the flesh. It's not behavioral. And I think, unfortunately, that's a lot of how we try to approach most of our sin. Uh, We call that sin management. Uh, You've heard it said in kind of counseling circles, it's more behavioral management. Let me say something really clear. There are times that you just need some behavioral help to get you through the valley of the shadow. Maybe you're caught in something. That's usually the early stages. But what Paul's saying here is that long term, it cannot change your heart. And that is the ultimate problem. Every sin problem that we have is a worship disorder of some kind, right? Uh, it is some, some way in which we are failing to recognize God is creator and us is created. Another way to say it that fits with this letter, it's a failure to understand the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ himself. And we're going to look at a couple of examples of that. As we shared last week, if you think about supremacy and sufficiency as the banks of the river, I think that's really helpful because usually we spill out one side or the other. And so what Paul's saying here is the first thing that you must do is remember your resurrectedness in Christ. You have to remember who you are. And the way that that's often been said is that when you are redeemed or saved in Christ, you become glorified, and yet you spend the majority of your life unpacking and learning what that actually means, right? There's still a a process that must happen in time. We still struggle with flesh and blood. We've, We've been given the raw material, but we've got to do something with it. Right, And so many of us struggle kind of on two sides. Either we think that any sort of activity is us trying to earn our salvation. How can you earn what you already have? So, so if you are redeemed in Christ, your effort is not, is not going to gain you any more of God's love. What it will do is help you understand more deeply God's love for you. Amen? And so that's really important distinction to make. And then there's, there's, there's others who think that actually, no, the more that I do, the more that God will love me. No, that's not true either. You, you are a finished work in Christ, which is why, as Paul says it, your life is hidden with him on high, and it'll be revealed in glory, right? So you're not making that life that is hidden with Christ on high better. You're not. It is best as it stands right now. But what you're doing is coming to discover in time what it means that you already are in eternity. And you may be going, that kind of makes my head hurt. Well, let's be fair. Any discussion of eternity becomes very quickly, um, very quickly a difficult conversation, right? Because we're talking about something that is timeless, that is endless, that is beyond our finiteness. And so we have to do that with great care. 
And so Paul now is going to transition and say, all right, here's some things that you need to do. But before I do that, I, I want to read a quote to you from a man named James Bryan Smith, who wrote a book on Colossians chapter 3 called Hidden in Christ, Living as God's Beloved. He says this, and this is very important for us to remember this week, next week, and the following week. Paul's admonitions are all based on the co-resurrection his hearers have experienced. Now, co-resurrection just means we are resurrected with Christ together, right? So that that would be a co-resurrection. It's based on the co-resurrection his hearers have already experienced. They are not a list of legalistic rules. They are expressions of how Christ's followers live because Jesus lives in them. So our, our works, what we do, ought to reflect who we are. And you already get this, right? Um, how, how often do you call somebody a hypocrite? You're a hypocrite. We do it with politicians, fairly. We, we do it with sports figures. We do it with, um, you have the whole Harvey Weinstein thing that's going on right now. I don't know if you've been under a rock or something, but the whole hashtag me too movement. Um, and, so, and so we do it with people. We recognize your behavior is not consistent with what you say. And that is not okay. And yet, and yet, we are the quickest to plead for grace and mercy when someone points out to us, hey, your behavior is not consistent with what you say. So Paul's going to say, that's not all right. Your behavior needs to be consistent with what you say, and you need to deal with the plank in your own eye first, not someone else's. And so what he's going to say to us, and this is the the key truth from this passage, that as a result of our resurrection, that's really important. You must hold that intention through all that's going to be said about what we are called to do. You cannot do it outside of the resurrection. All of these things, as he had previously said, will be death to you. But as a result of our resurrection, we are to actively and perpetually put to death what is earthly within us, And glorify God as the redeemed new creation society in Christ alone. That is, the active and the perpetual are critically important. Because though we are redeemed in Christ, we are not yet perfected. And so, in this fallen world, given our struggles, there are things that we will wrestle with. How many of you feel like, I mean, I I don't struggle with pride anymore at all. I'm so proud of myself, I don't struggle with pride no more. Wait, oh, you stepped on it. Um, or how many of you would say, yeah, I have, in fact, I am so, uh, um, I so don't struggle with lust that I could start a ministry to prostitutes. It would be easy for me to do as a male. No, that would be foolishness on most of your parts. We all are going to struggle, and I think that's important to remember that, that, that the Bible doesn't lie to us. It doesn't say that once you become a Christian, everything becomes easier. In fact, what does it say? Once you become a Christian, you will suffer as your Savior suffered. The student is not greater than his master. Uh, You now have just become a part of an organization that is hated throughout all of time. Welcome. (laughs) right? And it doesn't end very well for you except for the return of Christ. That in time, it is going to hurt and you are going to struggle. Now you may say, "That, that doesn't sound like a good pitch. Well, (laughs) no, if it doesn't actually resolve in the new heavens and new earth. No, if the resurrection is not true. You're right, it's a terrible sales pitch. 
if those things are not true. In fact, Paul admits that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, hey, if the resurrection's not true, let me just say this. We are of the most pitied people in all of the world. We are to be pitied above everybody else because this, this is going to be worthless without the resurrection. And it's very important that we not then think, so there's ditches everywhere, that you're to be of so much heavenly mindedness that you're of no earthly good. In fact, what Paul's going to argue is, no, this is the earthly good that your heavenly mindedness should produce, right? All right, so with that being said, let's step into the text and look at what we are to put to death. Verse 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, there's some things we really need to pay attention to here. Notice the strength of language, and that therefore, again, as, as Robbie a few weeks ago mentioned, is a very important word. It's in light of your resurrection. So because you've been resurrected in Christ, you now have the power to put to death, and, and the verbiage there in the Greek is this kind of ongoing, it's not a one-and-done deal. That's really important. You are not going to put to death your addiction with pornography, and, and you're going to be fine. Forever. Now, some people, God is very gracious to, and once they've dealt with it, they kind of move on. But some people, it is a thorn in the flesh, and it is an ongoing struggle. Same is true for alcohol. Same is true for lots of addictive things. Some people are granted uh, great grace in that, and some are called to more struggle, both for the purpose of displaying God's uh, love and glory in our lives. It's mystery to me, too. I wish I had control. I don't. And so he says, you've got to put to death, therefore. Now, that, that violent language uh, makes us a little bit uncomfortable, I think. Right? It's not dissimilar to what Christ said. If your right eye were to cast your whole body into hell, what should you do with it? Pluck it out. If your right hand were to cause the whole body to descend into hell, what should you do? Cut it off. Now, is that, is that specifically, are you supposed to start chopping off body parts in hopes of making yourself a better person? Well, actually, that would contradict what Paul said at the end of chapter 2. Because what is asceticism? Asceticism is denying oneself. So Christ is not saying cut physically off, but he's saying cut at the root of, get to the root of what it is that is keeping you from worshiping the Lord your God and cut that out. Because if all you deal with this is the physical and not the spiritual, uh, you will not have done much at all. And so uh, he's saying, you need to take very seriously what is earthly within you. You need to put it to death because why? What's it doing to you? It's putting you to death. There's a gravity to this that I don't think we take seriously enough. That, that we kind of think we're maybe caught in this sort of neutral cosmic battle, Right? That, that, that we're not fighting against uh, principalities and powers that are greater than us, that we're not dealing with uh, a, a, a being who is so much smarter than us and has worked very hard to try to destroy us. Because you've got to remember, Satan is not looking for followers. You don't do him any good as a follower. You only accomplish his goal when you are destroyed. Why? Because you are image bearers. 
You are image bearers whether you are saved or not, actually. And how do I know that? Because Scripture tells us uh, that you can't, we, we're not supposed to be killing one another because we all bear, all bear the image. Everyone, even those who profess something very different, they still display in some measure the glory of God. Doesn't mean they're saved. Which is why we must have respect for all of life. But what it does mean is that if Satan's goal is to destroy God's glory, he must destroy the image. So what does that mean for creation? Creation too must be destroyed because it bears witness. So you need to understand Satan is not looking to set up an alternate kingdom. He's looking to tear the one down completely that has come into the world. And so anything that is supportive of the things of Satan, anything that is contra the glory of God, you need to understand is ultimately going to be destructive. And if we don't have that mindset, there's no way that we can take seriously this command, by the way, this imperative, ongoing, active, and perpetual to put to death that which is earthly in us. And so if you're not taking that seriously... You won't do it. You won't see the gravity of the situation. And here's part of our problem. Right? I've said this before, I think. Like, some of you think, well, you know, maybe if, maybe if God would do something where it would expose me, like if I looked at pornography, my right eye would pop out and kind of dangle on my cheek so that everybody would be like, oh, I know what you did. That would help. No. We would give up both eyes. We would give up everything we are and be destroyed. It doesn't phase us one iota to be exposed doesn't bother us hardly at all. And therein is the problem. That's why it is a worship disorder. We don't understand who we really are and how important we are to the Lord our God. This is how much he loves us, that he would say, I'm going to empower you to deal with the thing that is killing you. You're not a passive, passive in this. You are called to be a very active participant. Knowing that you cannot do it on your own, you must do it in the power of the resurrection. We're going to see that you have to do it in the power of community, which we don't like a whole lot either. And, and, and so this is the command. And he lists off five things, and he really kind of starts from those which are most external. Sexual immorality is something that is very external and seen, and he moves to covetousness, which is something that's more on the inside, right? You can't always tell... Uh, the kind of vehicles that make me covet, covet things because of the 90 Impala that I drive, right? You would, you would think, Cameron doesn't covet vehicles, clearly. <laughs> That's not true. I covet the ones with the 20s and, and never mind. But, but I do covet uh, just the same. You just don't see it, right? Covetousness is not so evidential. So, so Paul is making it very clear. It's from the things that are obvious all the way to the things that are not so obvious that maybe only you know in the darkness of your own heart. These things are killing you. Now, this is also not intended to be an exhaustive list because he's going to give us another list of five in just a bit, right? And so there's lots of things that we need to be thinking through that are contra the glory of God. So the mistake you could make is go, all right, I'm going to make me a checklist of these five things or these ten things, as we're going to discover. And each day I'm going to go, all right, didn't struggle with that one, didn't struggle with that one, didn't struggle. Oh, such a good person. I should probably tell somebody and then put it on Facebook, like take a screenshot with a cup of coffee and the sunlight coming in for your Instagram account. And so, uh, so, so God is saying, hey... These things are, are destructive to you. Now, let, let's apply this. Take a couple of these because we can't go through all of them. We don't have 
enough time, but I want to just give you a couple so maybe in the small groups or maybe you can kind of think these through. Let's talk about sexual immorality. I know that just made all of you uncomfortable, but I want to talk to you about how it affects the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, that whole banks of the river issue, all right? So for those of us who uh, have struggled with pornography and those who have struggled with same-sex attraction, think about it from this perspective. You could say that Christ is not supreme as creator. You could go out the banks of the river by saying this. My struggle is natural. I was born this way. Um, it, it, is, it is not anything that I can do anything about. And if God made me this way, then it's his fault. And I can embrace it and I can become it. And that is the best thing for me to do. I don't need to question in any way, shape, or form any of the ideology. I don't need to question in any way, shape, or form how this is going to affect my family. I don't need to question in any way, shape, or form what this is going to turn me into. Or how it's going to affect the glory of God. Right? Have you heard that before? And so that is to deny the supremacy of Christ. That's to go out the bank that side. The other one to deny the sufficiency of Christ is to say, my struggle is too large for Christ to do anything about. I can't get any better. I've tried. I've done all of the earthly things, which actually is to make the mistake of the end of Colossians chapter 2. It is to try to use behavioral mechanisms to try to become something you cannot become except through the resurrection. And that is an ongoing and perpetual thing that you must actively participate in, right? So we say, I, I'm already defeated. I might as well embrace it. Christ's work is insufficient for redeeming me. Now, one of the mistakes that we make is the presumption that if, if you are redeemed in Christ, then everything should tidy up all at once. No, actually quite the opposite. It actually becomes a whole lot harder because now you have something you're being kind of measured against, if you will. Now you have an image that you're being transformed into. So be very, very careful um, of, of how you think through the things that you are trying to put to death that are earthly within you and always keep in mind the banks of the river, the supremacy of Christ, and the sufficiency of Christ on either side. We could take another one of these. Um, uh, evil desire, right? We could say, well, again, much the same way. I was born this way. Um, I have torn the wings off of flies since I was little. I have burned up ants with a magnifying glass. I've killed squirrels and put them in the freezer and stuck them in people's mailboxes. That sounds awful specific, don't it? Uh, I knew somebody one time that did that kind of stuff. Uh, and therefore, therefore, um, my disdain for humanity, my hatred for all that is good is natural. I was born this way. And that's to deny the supremacy of Christ as creator to do something different. The sufficiency, much in the same way, I, I can't change. I've tried. I've done all the behavioral stuff. I've gone to therapy at least twice. Uh, it didn't work both either time. Um, and so, so there's this, you know, there's all this kind of denying of those things. But, but one of the things I think that causes us to deny each of those things is the false presupposition that once you are saved, you are perfected in this life. You're not. You cannot think that way. That's why Paul says this as command, right? He's already admitted if you're, resurre if, if, if you're resurrected, now you begin to actually have the, the ability, the supernatural ability to do the work of your life being transformed and you no longer walking in sin. Now notice what it says in the next verse, verse 6. It says, on account of, and this is a really important word, 
these. Why is that an important word? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What does that mean that is, that, that is not why the wrath of God is coming? You. It's not you that he is going to pour his wrath out upon. That is not his desire as your heavenly father. His desire is not to destroy you, which is why he tarries, which is why he gives us time to put to death that which is earthly within us. But his wrath is coming on account of these, sexual immorality, evil desire, covetousness, all of these things that have infiltrated the world and is destroying our humanity and is destroying the image that is in us. And causing us to think less of ourselves than what we ought as God's children. That is critically important because oftentimes I think that we think God is at war with us. No, God is at war with the sin that is within you. His longing is for you to be preserved in the power of the resurrection. That's how good our God is. That he would not want us to continue to wallow in something that is going to make us less and less and less human over time. And as one who has served at the rescue mission and in uh, other situations and walked with people who have spent their lives destroying themselves, it is, this is true, it's amazing how deteriorating it is to their humanity. It's amazing to me, like when someone hides an affair actually, um, and, and it ruptures open, and you find out, they didn't want you to find out, but you find out how inhumane they become. There's a great scene in Dostoevsky's book, Humiliated and Insulted, where there's a guy named the prince who's been orchestrating all of these things. I won't ruin the story for you, but there's a scene where he reveals himself and his purpose to the main character. And he says this as he's revealing himself And he says, you have charged me with all of these ills, but the only thing you can really charge me with is being most honest of all. At least I have come to terms with and accepted what I am, which most of you can't even do in your own private selves. So what you charge me with is honesty, not debauchery. And so... He's becoming, and and as it goes on, it's interesting how even his character becomes less and less human, and he refers to himself as being reduced even, as he's revealing himself in honesty. And so it's important that we recognize that God is not angry with you. So what does this mean for us in terms of evangelism? What does this mean for us as we deal with people that we disagree with? Right? Communities of people that have ideologies that are contra what we see as biblical. I was listening to, I've been listening to Jerem Barr's uh, class on Francis Schaeffer the early years. And one of the things they say about Schaeffer that was such a hallmark of his personality is how much he loved his enemies. And how he didn't, he, would, he, he had a public debate with this bishop who suggested Um, and it's weird that we're taking communion today, you're safe. He suggested dropping LSD into the communion wine so people could have a spiritual experience, right? I'm sure it would increase the number of people who are like, when's communion? Uh, And so he had this this public thing, and they asked him, uh, they used the term debate, and he goes, whoa, 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 this is not a debate. What's true is true. I don't need to debate anything. I'm interested in learning more about this bishop and why he thinks the way he does. 
And he and Schaefer actually became lifelong friends. And the bishop was challenged in a way that I don't think cutting his nose off to ask him to smell the rose would have done. Do you? And so, in recognizing that God is not coming to destroy a group of people. Now, did I just say there's nobody in hell? Nope, there are people in hell. But it's, it's they didn't go to hell because of that which was inherent within them. They went to hell because of the sin that is been, they have inherited and perpetuated. So God is not coming because he's angry at a group of people. He's coming in, in his judgment. His wrath will, will deal with that which has kept us from him, that which has dehumanized us. And that needs to affect how we interact with one another. That needs to affect how we interact with those we disagree with. That we would not be so concerned with ideas that we would forget the people. Now, there's a lot in that that you, you may need to wrestle with. So if you have questions or think maybe you heard me say something I didn't say, um, by all means, let's chat. Let's get that squared away. But the most important point is this, is that God is, God is interested in redeeming his people, not destroying them, that his wrath is coming because of the, that which has invaded his good creation. And that's important for us to remember. And then he goes on to say, it was in these things that you once lived. You walked. They were the whole of your being. They defined you. They are, were destroying you. This was who you were. But now, now in the power of the resurrection, you've got to put them all away. You've got to put them away. And so this section, he speaks of the putting off because you're no longer slaves to sin. Think about what Romans 6 says as it uses our baptism to remind us you are no longer slaves to sin. Meaning it doesn't have the final say over you. You can overcome it. You can't become perfect, but you can, you can actually walk in this world in a, in a manner that is glorifying to God and a blessing to all those around you. Would that that would be our perspective, that we were free enough in Christ and our union with Christ to enjoy that and be that and live that. Listen to what F.F. Bruce says about this particular portion of the text. He says, you have died with Christ. Act and speak and think, therefore, so as to make it plain that this death is no mere figure of speech, but a real event which has severed the links which bound you to the dominion of sin. What a powerful word from F.F. Bruce. He would say, don't just go around acting as if it's true. Live in light of its truth. Let it be seen. Let your fruit be seen by all men. Let the light shine in the darkness. Amen? So I need to ask you, what earthly things do you wrestle with that are not pleasing to the Lord? Just so we're clear, they may not be in this list of 10. There are other things than just these 10 things. Now, these 10 are probably the top 10, some of the most common, anger and malice and so forth. But what are the earthly things that you're wrestling with? Because we first need to identify them before we can do anything about them, right? Step one, admit you have a problem and what that problem is. And then a better question is, what are you actively doing? Uh, to put these things to death, and is that perpetual? Have you grown tired, maybe? And if you have, let me say this, because I, I, I know there's those among us who've grown tired. Um, are, you, are you reaching out to anybody to try to help you? 
to walk with you. Because one of the devil's favorite techniques is isolation. He loves to isolate. He loves to isolate us in our sin. He loves to isolate us in our grief. He loves to isolate us in our pride. He just loves to cut us off from each other. And so if you have grown tired and you've got an ongoing struggle, um, please come talk to us so we can, we can walk with you. Again, we take the same perspective that God does. We're not mad at you. We want to see that which is destroying you, that which is dehumanizing you, dealt with. But what are you doing actively and perpetually to deal with these things? It's worth our consideration. If you would turn back to the text. Now, this next portion of text is really serves as a connection between the putting off and the putting on, which we'll deal more with the putting on next week. We've just dealt with the putting off. Uh, but if you would, give your attention to the reading of God, God's word again. He says, do not lie to one another. That's an interesting way to open that up. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Now, he's using baptismal language. It, it used to be that when they would get baptized, they would take off the, their old cloak and put on a brand new garment. You sometimes see this practice, and I don't know if you knew what it was, but when, when we do baptize infants and they have those little baptismal cloaks on, the, the long, white, flowing things, that's part of that tradition. That's to say that this baptism, part of what it signifies and seals, is becoming a new creation in Christ. Now, we don't think that salvation, um, baptism saves anybody, but that's the picture. That's what you should think of when you see that child with that long dress on, instead of wondering, why are they wearing that ill-fitting garment? It's baptismal clothing. It's the putting on of the new self. Now, he says, now, he says, put off. Now, he starts with, don't lie to one another. And what, why would he say that? Well, if you are redeemed in Christ, if, you are, uh, uh, if you've been resurrected with Christ, you don't need to fear who you were and what you're struggling with. You can actually be honest with your brothers and sisters in Christ because they're struggling with the same and similar things, which is that which is earthly within them. There's nobody in this room who's not struggling with something. Nobody. And when we lie to one another, when we don't tell the truth to one another about how we've either offended each other or how we're struggling, we actually isolate ourselves. We cut ourselves off from community that is so desperately needed. Right? And so we, we do. We go around all the time not wanting to say what's really going on in our hearts and not really wanting to share how we're struggling. And the whole time, all we're doing is the devil's work. I know it's messy, and you got to make sure it's a safe place because there's people who will use things against you. But let me just say this. That cannot be the greatest fear that you have because they can only use it against you but for so far. What they can't do is take away what Christ has made you, which is one of the reasons I don't have any problem getting up here and telling you kind of what's going on a lot of times in my own heart. Right? I'm not, I'm not afraid of you knowing I'm a broken human being. The Bible says I am. And the Bible says that while I'm going to be held to a higher accountability, I'm still in need of all the same grace and mercy you are. If that makes you uncomfortable, well, then that's probably why you don't read your Bible much. Right? 
Because that's what it's saying. It's just, it's just telling the truth on these things. And so, and so it says, don't cut yourself off. James says it this way. He says, confess your sins to one another. What would this community look like if we were so quick to confess and seek forgiveness and pursue reconciliation as God has done? And you may say, well, he didn't do it very fast. Well, you know why he has to tarry? Because we're so daggum slow. Because we are so hard-headed and hard-hearted at times. And so he says, put off those things, that, that old man, that thing that once defined you with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Be renewed in the, in the image of the creator. Now, it's interesting. He then breaks it down. He says, because those of you who are in Christ, all of the things that once separated you are broken down. All of the things that once defined you, your race, your social status, your religion, um, your work, all of those things that once defined you, define you no more. You are now in Christ and all and all is in Christ, which gives us this phenomenal opportunity to represent um, this new redeemed community which I have to confess to you, we do pretty rotten at. We are constantly, you, you should always, you should have kind of a check in your spirit whenever you start talking about something um, that just builds a wall back up, right? Uh, for, there was those of us who read the, the book um, Between the World and Me. I, I didn't go to the actual discussion, so I, I don't want to speak on behalf of those men. But I hope that it was very eye-opening because one of the things that uh, Tanahashi Coates deals with is this idea that for us as white folks, um, whenever we turn to somebody and say, yeah, but won't you deal with black-on-black crime? As if that's the whole solution. As if there's not other reasons why there's situations that have been imposed upon principalities and powers. How quickly we lose our theology when we turn and say, no, it's flesh and blood. The issue is flesh and blood. And you must deal with it at the level of flesh and blood. Do you know what you've just done? Become patently unbiblical. You have just rendered a situation that greatly needs the gospel for which Christ died. A mere earthly situation that is meaningless. And is of no help whatsoever. I just use that as an example of something that I think is very salient to us. We're constantly building walls back up between each other. And saying, yeah, but if, if you did this, then it'd make it a whole lot easier for me to do that. As if Christ dying for you didn't make it easy enough as it was. Or possible. We could do that with any community. Pick any community with which we may have some sort of at-oddsness. Now, is there, is there a cheap unity here? Is it to be unthought? No, deeply thought. Yes, there's sin on both sides. Yes, there's sin on all sides. Yes, Jesus is needed by everyone. But you must deal with you first. You must put to death that which is earthly within you. You must put off the old man because you are part of a new redeemed creation. You are part of a new society and community that should look very different than the world and all of its ills. So what do we do when we lie to each other? What do we do when we don't minister to one another? What do we do when we don't grieve when others grieve? Can I be honest with you for a second? 
Because you know I'm going to be. I don't know why I ask your permission. It was just a southern nicety. I think this is important. Uh, I've talked to several people about um, how to kind of approach this, and they've all said, no, you need to speak to it. And I don't want to speak to it in anger or hurt. But I do need to speak to it because I think the Caltons are about to go through this. As her father, they've had a hard time waking him up, and he uh, probably won't, uh, won't make it much longer. But my wife and I, uh, um, as I was coming up uh, last week, uh, found out that my daughter-in-law had a miscarriage. And, um, and that, that was grievous to us. My wife longs to be a grandparent, and so that means I long to be a grandparent. And um, just knowing that my daughter-in-law was hurting. Uh, and, uh, and I'm so thankful for Jonathan praying in the middle of the service, and a number of you did reach out to us. But, but honestly... More people outside the church reached out to us than inside. Now, I don't doubt that many of you were praying for us. I don't doubt it one iota. But you didn't tell me. Or Susan. Many of you did not. And you don't, it's, it's amazing how quickly isolating grief can be and how quickly the devil can, can kind of slide in and go, what exactly are you a part of again? I mean, you got Silas at Starbucks who sat with you on the ash heap and cried with you. That dude knows better than he do. Why, why, why waste your time here? Hear me rightly. I'm not giving in to that, and I won't. And I do understand that often for many of you, you were wondering, what could we say? We don't want to inundate you and Susan. Well, let me, let's do a little grief 101. To tell somebody you love them and are praying for them takes how long for what I just said? We're not looking for theological answers. We're not, we don't need a dissertation. We don't need 100 casseroles at this point, though they'd be awesome. I, I take casseroles of any kind, except tuna. Uh, and so, <laughs> so I think sometimes we just we get caught up in, in, in kind of going, yeah, I don't want to bother them. I want to give them some space. Well, while you're doing that, let me just tell you, the isolation clock begins. And it's running hard. And so, don't, don't inundate me at the end of the service to try to check something off a box and be like, I want to make up for lost time. No, let's go forward. And so, as there are people in our community who, who are going to hurt, please hear me. They need to hear from you. They don't need to hear much. They don't need to, they don't need to hear a lot, but just tell them you love them and are praying for them. And you may say, well, I don't have much relationship. Well, that's a place to start. Don't second guess. They need it. We needed it, right? And the Lord did provide. He did in a broad sense. And I'm thankful for that. The kingdom's a big place. But in order for us to grow together as a community of people, as an intimate group of people, we've got to, we've got to grow in these areas. And I don't mean that to beat you guys up. I really don't because I know. I know you, a lot of what you were thinking. But, you know, I just have to say, like, if you're quick to send me an email about our music style, but not quick to send me an email when I'm, I'm hemorrhaging. What am I supposed to do with that? So let's be a community of people who recognize the walls have been torn down. Let's be a community of people who don't lie to one another, who wrestle openly and honestly with the things that are tearing us apart because, and remember what it is that's tearing us apart, not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, uh, uh, actual things that are, um, uh, worthy of the wrath of God, not people. 
Let us grow in our love and care for one another. Let us show the world what a redeemed new society could look like, even in all of its messiness and failure. Probably one of the best places we'll do it is when we didn't get it right. What are you going to do when you don't get it right? Are you going to run? Are you going to lean in? I'm choosing to lean in. Dick Lucas says this, The new creation then is a society where the barriers that separate us from one another in this world are abolished. Here, there cannot be the deep divisions, national and traditional, tribal and geographical, social and cultural, that largely distinguish us from one another. These things have been torn down. Let us be defined by them and not all these other worldly things. So, let me ask you this. How are you different as a Christian as compared to when you were not? What's the new self look like on you? It's worth thinking about. What are some ways in which you're growing more in the image of Christ as a member of the redeemed new creation society? We call that church. And are you? And if you're not, are you active in trying to figure out why? So often I think we just say, well, means of grace aren't working. I didn't feel anything this morning. The bread didn't do a whole lot for me. As if it's all on that instead of on us to cultivate, right? No, all of this that we've been given is raw material. You got to cultivate, right? So part of our cultivation here at Christ Community Church, which is very important to us, is that from call to worship to benediction is one event. So let me ask you, what time do we start around here? I'm glad you are not answering because it's clear you may not know. We start at 1030. We do. Now, for us, that, that's very important that, not that you, don't hear this legalistically, don't send me any emails on this, um, but, but, but if, if, if it's important that we use all the means of grace, the first thing you've got to do is acknowledge that that's in fact what they are. So call to worship, it matters, whether you feel anything when we read it or not. How important is it for us to hear? If we're going to put something to death, we need to hear from Psalm 51 that something has already been put to death so that we can. How important is it for us to hear from Hebrews 9 that, that that thing that was put to death is actually Christ himself, that the blood of bulls and goats wasn't going to get it done ultimately, which the psalmist understood something greater had to come, right? And all of that before we even get here so that we can hear the words that the scripture give to us and challenge us with. And so if you're casual about it, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm going to be in my... My seat where I need to be, that's on you. But I'm just saying, what are we reflecting? What are some of the small things that we're doing or not doing uh, to cultivate uh, the means of grace? Because they don't, they don't just do stuff sitting on the table by themselves. You must take and eat. So that being said, what a wonderful transition to that time, to where we can take and eat. What we've learned from... Uh, Colossians 3, 5 through 11 is that we are called to actively and perpetually put to death that which is earthly within us. And that we are to glorify God as the redeemed new creation society in Christ alone. You can't do that apart from the death of Christ. You cannot do that apart from the blood of Christ. It just can't be done. We are unable to nourish ourselves. We're unable to keep this thing going. And so Christ in great mercy. Let me see if I can do this. Everybody hold your breath. All right. So Christ in great mercy has given us an 
ongoing image, a word made visible so that we would be able to see that he continues on our behalf. He continues to make intercession. That what this table represents is not not only our past, but who we have become and are becoming and that Christ is coming again. Amen?